You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Um, So I remember when I was, I don't know, 24, 25 years old, I was an intern at a fairly large church. I was in the first semester of Bible college at a Bible college here in Houston. And it was my first real exposure to both like career ministry, like what does it look like to, I don't know, work in a church for a paycheck And it was also my first glimpse at, like, academic Christianity. What does it look like to really academically, rigorously study the scriptures? And both of these two things kind of collided. And I remember in my morning devotionals, I came up with this profound idea. It wasn't really that profound, but for a 24-year-old, it was brilliant, right? Um, And I decided, I want to search the Gospels for the gospel, the, the, the gospel that I had heard and believed and grown up in, the gospel that says, hey, Jesus has, has come, he loves you, that he's died for you, uh, that he has taken away your sins, and that he has resurrected and has promised that you can one day dwell with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. It's beautiful. It, it won me to Jesus. It helped me to see the beauty and the delight of Jesus. And yet as I searched the gospels, I didn't find much of the gospel in there, at least not in those words, not in that way. But Mark himself tells you in Mark chapter 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so wait, what am I missing? And so today what I want us to do is I, I want us to answer the question, why doesn't Mark's gospel sound like my gospel Or maybe for some of us, a better way to phrase the question would be, why doesn't Mark's gospel sound like so much of what we hear around us as, quote unquote, the gospel, the good news of Jesus? We're going to look at what Mark has to say, but then really, more importantly, I want us to circle back towards the end, and I want us to answer the question, wait, so what do we do with this? Like, who cares? What, what does this matter to me, right? So there's some, maybe some nuances in how you're going to phrase some things. Okay, big deal. So what? What am I supposed to do with this information? So l- let's first look at what Mark has to say. If you've been with us for the last 10 years, we've been in Mark. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's only been like five. Again, just kidding. Kidding. Um, we're, we're like towards the end. This is... This is the climax of the book. We're there. Uh, We are in the the first scenes of the end of Mark's gospel. And so 
along the way, we've hoped to have painted this broad, big, cosmic picture of what Mark is trying to do with his gospel. And I want to revisit a couple of things so you can kind of see what I'm getting at here. So back in Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters the temple and begins to engage in this conflict with the Pharisees. Before he does, he curses this fig tree, pronounces this curse on it, this really weird thing. Hey, why doesn't this fig tree have fruit when it's not supposed to have fruit? Ah, curse you, and it dies. And you're like, wow, that was intense, Jesus. What's going on here? He then goes in. There's some trouble in the temple. He doesn't like what he sees. He flips over some tables. And then fast forward, he gets in this argument, why in the world are you flipping over tables? Who do you think you are? There's this question of authority. We get to Mark chapter 13, and all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about like, the end of the world. And it's like, wait, wait a second, what's going on here? So what I want us to see is like, Mark is not just recording history, not in the way that we would tend to think of recording history. It's not that what Mark is saying isn't historical. Yes, it absolutely is. But he's telling it in such a way to try and make a point. It's almost like if you were to watch a movie that was about an actual real true life story. They're going to leave some stuff out intentionally. They're going to include some stuff intentionally. They might even reorder some stuff intentionally for convenience or for dramatic effect or whatever. Well, Mark's going to do the same thing. So as we get to the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus says this surprising thing as they're looking over the temple and his disciples are going, oh my gosh, isn't this just the greatest thing you've ever seen, Jesus? Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus goes, you think it's beautiful? You think it's great? Tell you the truth, it's about to all come crumbling to the ground. And then he launches into this apocalyptic discourse, right? We've got more about this online. I'm not going to get into the details, but my, my point is this. What Mark is doing is he's thematically dropping hints that something big was coming. And, and not just like something big in some sort of spiritual way, like in a real, practical, tangible, material way, something big is coming that's about to transform how you 12 go about your lives, He drops these hints throughout, and the whole point is that as we hear and read Mark's gospel, that we would hear and read the way that the disciples are hearing, and that we would be given the same type of challenge the disciples are giving. So what are some of these things? Well, we see the destruction of the temple that Jesus predicts, but we also see Jesus leaving the temple at the beginning of chapter 13, going out the east side of the city, and then going up to the Mount of Olives. Now, this just seems coincidental, except this is exactly what happens back in Ezekiel, as the Shekinah glory of God departs the temple, heads out the east gate, goes up onto the Mount of Olives, and says, soon this temple is about to be destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians. It's the same exact story. The presence of God is no longer in the temple. This thing that represents religious systems, this thing that represents how God operates on earth, it's shown to have been bankrupt. And it's all about to come crumbling down. And so in Mark chapter 14, we saw this last week, We're introduced to this side note of a character named Simon who has leprosy or a skin issue. And we read that and we're like, oh, okay, cool. Maybe some people knew him. Maybe this is a way to designate him from other Simons that they knew. Uh, So Mark goes out of his way. But as Zach told us last week, no, no, no. There were some very real material implications about this. This would have marked him as impure, 
unfit to stand in the presence of God. You are not allowed to go into the temple and worship, Simon. You got skin issues. Never has access to the presence of God. Never has access to worship inside of the temple. And yet, the presence of God enters his house, has a meal with him. Something is changing. Something big is happening. Jesus is doing something among these 12 that is going to upend their lives. And then towards the end of our story last week, we saw Jesus anointed as a king. And yet the play on that is that as he's being anointed as king, he's being anointed for his death. And we find that this new thing that God is doing is somehow miraculously and powerfully and victoriously coming through death. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And as Mark is dropping these thematic hints, I want us to see them and hear them maybe a little bit differently, maybe for the first time this morning. Verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is the Passover meal. The Passover lamb is sacrificed. When the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? Right, so if you've, if you've been around church for a while, you kind of have an idea of what Passover is, what this Passover meal is. Right? The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have been this, like, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how long. It was several days long, I think like a week-long celebration, and it was inaugurated. It began with this one meal, the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal is a meal that the Israelites would eat in inauguration and celebration and remembrance of what God did for them back in Exodus. The Exodus story is that God's people, the people that God had said, hey, I'm going to take you, I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to make you a people, I'm going to richly bless you, so much so that blessings will flow out of you onto the rest of the world around you. At the beginning of Exodus, these people find themselves enslaved, property, working day and night for someone else's uh, name, for someone else's material possessions, for someone else's gain. This is their whole life. This becomes their whole identity. For 400 years, they have been erased from the face of the earth in name and an identity. And they cry out to God, God, where are you? And God responds. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of this. This isn't a story about the Exodus this morning. However, shameless plug. As we near Lent, we're going to look at the Exodus story over the 40 days leading up to the celebration of Easter. And I want us to hear the story in a way that hopefully will put us into this very place where we see ourselves as the people of God who are looking out saying, God, where are you? But as we do that, right, the one big thing that we have to deal with in Exodus is this Passover meal that they're celebrating is a commemoration of the fact that somehow, in some way, God is associated with the killing of every firstborn man, woman, child, and animal in Egypt. Like, that's heavy. That's intense. And, and I think, right, again, not going to deal with the whole thing this morning, but one way to help us understand that story is if you put yourself in the seat of an enslaved individual and you hear that your conquering God is coming to deliver you by 
repaying upon those who took your firstborn away from you by taking their firstborn away from them, the story begins to make a little bit more sense. Right? We can grapple with some of the, the ethics and the morality of that at another time, but I think if we switch our perspective just a little bit, we can begin to hear that story in a little bit different way. And you can understand, as the Israelites sit down to eat this meal, as they prepare the Passover meal with Jesus, they once again find themselves as a people under conquest. They go out on the streets, and there are Roman soldiers everywhere. They pay taxes, and and their tithes, and their money, and their stuff is still going to someone else. They may not be enslaved in the way that they were in Exodus, but they are still very much a people whose identity was in question, whose Uh, enslavement was a very real reality and whose God seemed to be nowhere to be found. It's with this context that Jesus says, hey, let's eat the Passover meal together. The meal is going to symbolize not simply the night that the angel of death passed over the firstborn of the Israelites. It's going to symbolize the entire exodus. And so what the Israelites would have done is they would have killed a lamb, they'd have taken the lamb's blood as instructed by Yahweh to do, they would have painted it on their doorposts, and as the angel of death sent by God comes into the land of Egypt, anyone at all, regardless of their uh, nationality, right, regardless of their ethnicity, Israelite or Egyptian, anyone who was in a household that had that blood on the door, the angel of death passed over. So they would eat this meal, and in this eating of this meal, They would eat a lamb, and they would eat bread, and they would eat bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of enslavement, so that they would never forget where they came from is kind of the idea. They celebrated this each year, and this was essentially the Passover meal. But there's something tied into this, because they weren't just delivered out of, they were delivered into The Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, yes, but they were also delivered into covenant, into special relationship with God. I told you I was going to be my people, and I'm going to be your your people. Sorry, I'm going to be your God in a way that I've never been anyone's God ever before. I'm going to live among you, and your entire lives are going to be focused and centered on me. And we see this in the tabernacle. And then later on in the temple, which is what makes the destruction of the temple such a big deal. And so when Jesus says, hey, I want to celebrate this Passover meal, we need to understand there's a lot being imported into this other than just, oh, they're going to sit down and share some bread. Like, yes, absolutely. But there's uh, striking religious overtones going on here. And Mark wants us to make sure that we have them in mind as we're preparing ourselves for Jesus' death. Verse 13 And so Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Uh, Something interesting here, it normally would have been a woman carrying a pitcher of water. The way that they would have known that this guy was the guy is instead of carrying like a wineskin of water, he's carrying a pitcher, some sort of weird designation, which suggests that this had all been set up ahead of time by Jesus or someone else, right? So this is a pre-planned thing. Verse 14, at the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I can eat the Passover with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. 
And so they find this guy, he takes them to this large room. This room would have housed, I don't know, 30 or so, or maybe even more people. This was not a small, poor little house. This was a nice, big thing. And arrangements had already been made, like the seating had been set up, the, the pre-meal preparations had already been done, Passover is ready, ready to be celebrated. Verse 16, so the two disciples went into the city and found everything just, to Jesus, just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now, there's some weird questions about the timing of all of this. Uh, John is a little bit different from Mark, Matthew, and Luke. We're not going to get into that this morning. If you've got questions, send me a, a, a text. I'm happy to answer uh, those questions for you, but it's kind of boring, and we're going to skip it, okay? Uh, short version is this. The Jewish people counted their days as beginning at, at sundown, right? So tonight, when the sun goes down, Monday starts. And so when he says, hey, they're, they're doing this on this day, and it's evening, we can assume it's actually Thursday night instead of Friday night. So when Jesus is being killed, right, this is the same time that the Passover lambs are being killed on Friday, the next day, in preparation for the feast of Passover, And so Jesus is actually eating this meal a night early, even though it is technically the right day, okay? So what in the world does that have to do with anything? We'll get there. The meal, so the the feast is going to have unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and a freshly slaughtered lamb. There's an actual order to this. It's not just them sitting around chilling. Hey, how was your day? Let's share some bread. Like they would, they had an order and you would do it in a certain way. And as that happened, there would be certain pronouncements blessed over the different elements. And usually the one doing that was the host of the meal. In most cases, it was the father. And in this, uh, a younger person or a child would say, hey, what makes tonight so different? And the father would respond, oh, this is the night that our people were freed from slavery. So as these elements are passed, as the bread is held up and blessed and then handed out, these pronouncements would have been being made. Verse 17, we see Jesus arriving with the 12, and as they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? I think when we read this, maybe this is me projecting a little bit, but I think when I read this, um, I don't readily put myself in the seat of the disciples. Imagine you're sitting here in this room, you're enjoying this religious meal with Jesus, you have some inkling of something's coming, we don't really know what it is, kind of par for the course with Jesus. And then Jesus suddenly says, hey, one of you, one of you right here, like my closest inner circle, one of you is about to betray me. And when I put myself in that situation, if I'm being really honest, my immediate response is, of course. Of course I ask, is it, is it me? Right? Rather than me saying, oh, I would never do that, Jesus, I'm the type of person that's like, oh, no, I could totally see myself doing that. Given the right situation and the right circumstance, I would probably actually sell Jesus out pretty quickly when it came down to it. And I, and I think this is kind of what Mark is trying to, to stir in us, is as we, 2,000 some odd years later, are trying to follow Jesus, and Jesus turns to these 12 and says, hey, one of you is about to betray, betray me. 
Is it me? Am I going to be the one that betrays you? Am I going to be the one that turns against you? Am I going to be the one that walks away? Am I going to be the Judas? He replied, it's one of you 12 who's eating from this bowl with me. Close. Real proximity. It's not a stranger. Verse 21, for the Son of Man must die, just as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. So there's some discussion about, well, wait a second, does Judas have a choice? And right, I, I think Judas does what Judas wants to do here. And, and I don't think the point of the text is to somehow say that God made Judas do this or that or whatever. I think the point of the text is to say, hey, this is how it's going to go. This was always how it going was going to go. This, none of this is happening by accident. The timing of this is significant. The way that it's happening is significant. None of this is an accident. God has not lost control of this situation. Jesus, in full and total and utter control, is willingly giving himself up. Jesus, in full and total control, with the knowledge of what Judas is about to do, continues to share a meal with him and choose to love him and treat him as a friend anyways. This is all happening the way that God has decided it was going to happen. It helps us to see what God is up to, and it helps us to actually see that this is good news. That that the conquering of God is actually God conquering. That the death of God is actually the life of the world. The, the cursing of the Son of Man is actually blessing for the cosmos. The upside-down way of Jesus is here. Verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. So remember, they would have done this. Now, what Jesus does here is he either adds to or more likely switches what he's saying So he would have normally uh, professed something like, hey, the bread that uh, God provided our fathers as they wandered in the wilderness, eat it and be thankful for it. And instead, Jesus takes it and he breaks it and either adding to that or completely replacing that, Jesus says, take it. This is my body. And the implicity in that statement is this is my entire being. This is not just a physical thing I'm about to go through. This is me, mind, body, and soul. I give it all to you. Take it. Take it. And he then took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Again, what they would have done normally. You take the cup of wine, you bless it, you give thanks for it. But then he gave it to them, and as they drank, he said, This is my blood which confirms the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Right, so story of Exodus. An enslaved people delivered not just out of slavery, but into relationship. That relationship was designated as a covenant. 
It was a special agreement between God and Israel. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then Jesus, in the moment that we celebrate that and remember that and commemorate that, Jesus holds up a cup and says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of the new relationship. This is the blood of the new agreement, the new people of God. Inaugurated by the death of a lamb. Inaugurated by blood. In place of what we would expect to hear, Jesus says something radically different because something radically different is happening. There's some really fun, like, Old Testament things we could go back to and look at. I'll I'll kind of briefly rattle them off just for the sake of time. But the vicarious nature of Jesus' offering of himself, right? He is offering his mind, body, and soul and being in place of our, the people of God's mind, body, and soul and being. And as he does this, there's, there's blood that is spilt, right? And so we go back and we look in the Old Testament, uh, back in Exodus, Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people. And as he throws it on the people, he says, behold, this is the blood of the covenant of Yahweh that he has made with you in accordance with all of these things. After the Passover and after the exodus from Egypt, a covenant was ratified with the blood of a sacrifice. It was sprinkled over the covenant community. The blood was essential to ratifying the covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 talks about a new covenant where we no longer are, are, are a covenant written on tablets of stone, but a covenant that is written on our very hearts by the Spirit of God. Zechariah talks about the blood of the covenant that will set us free. It's a new beginning for the people of God, focused not on the ritual sacrifice of an animal, but focused on the death of the Son of God himself. The Passover lamb is noticeably absent from this meal. There is no lamb. There's bread and there's wine. There's no lamb, and there's no bitterness from enslavement. Jesus is the lamb. And then finally, in verse 25, Jesus points out, hey, I tell you the truth. And anytime Jesus says says that, pay attention, because what he's about to say is like, hey, you can take this to the bank. That's probably still a really soft way of saying that, but still, take it to the bank. I won't drink wine again until the day I drink it new, in the kingdom of God. Okay, now some people are like, but wait, he drinks wine on the cross. Like, uh, wait, no, no, hold on. You're, you're misunderstanding what's going on here. Right? He's not saying, hey, I won't have a meal with you ever again. He's not saying, hey, I'm, I'm never going to taste wine ever again. What he's saying is, hey, no, I'm really actually going to die. Like, that's going to happen. This is coming. There's nothing anyone can do to change it. This is the divine plan. And as I do... I assure you that on the other side of the darkness is tremendous and profound light, light that you have never seen before, a light so brilliant and so amazing and so illuminating, it will transform everything you've ever known. One day, I will share a new wine with you in the kingdom of God. Take it to the bank. The days are about to get really dark, disciples. The light is coming on the other side of it. I can assure you of that. The, the eschatological dimension of this thing, right? The, uh, the finalness, the finality of this, 
is that Jesus is saying, hey, look, there's going to be a day where death actually really dies. There's going to be a day where sin, both the sin that's within us and the sin that's profoundly without us, outside of us, is going to finally and utterly and completely be put to an end. There's going to be a day where sickness and, and stress and all of just the junk is finally dealt with. And we find real, holistic, and lasting peace. Where we find resurrection in its fullness. So what do we do with this? What I want you to see is that, yes, forgiveness of my personal sins is a part of this, right? Like that, that's a necessary component. I have wronged people, and right, there needs to be some sort of making up for that wrongdoing. But that is a small part of what's going on here. Mark is painting a picture of liberation, In fact, when Mark says, hey, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel was a victory announcement. It's what would happen when the Romans conquered someone and the the herald would go ahead and say, hey, the Romans have won, so you better start acting like you love the Romans. A new kingdom is here. There's a new regime. There's a victory in this battle back here has been won. So you better start acting like it up here because it's coming. It's done. And here's why this is good news. So Mark takes this idea and he co-ops it and he says, hey, you want to hear the good news of the victory of Jesus? You want to hear the good news that God has actually conquered You want to hear the good news? It's this. A new Passover is here. A new exodus from slavery is here. There's been a new liberation. You no longer have to sin, uh, live under the oppression of sin any longer. You no longer have to live under the oppression of injustice any longer. This is liberating good news. So I, I want to illustrate this with a story. Um, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day like I'm prone to do every now and then. I don't, <laughs> I don't tend to frequent Facebook very often um, for lots of reasons. But as I was scrolling through, I was struck by this picture. It was a, a picture of a friend of ours uh, that used to go to Redemption a long time ago. They're, they're missionaries now um, somewhere else. And they were sharing the story of an Iranian group of men who had escaped Iran and, and had heard, somehow heard some version of the gospel. And as they heard this, they immediately like said, no, we want to hear more. And like on the spot, like gave up all of Islam and adopted like, hey, how do I follow this Jesus guy? Right? And we, we hear stories like this every now and then. Of, of people from one religion who hear the story of Jesus and, and in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and, and then some sort of spontaneous reaction to this, uh, this good news, like just leave everything they've ever known behind and adopt this whole new way of life. And that sounds so foreign to most of us, if we're being really honest. 
And I, th- I think part of the reason of that is a lot of us have grown up in a, a world that's kind of steeped in at least Christianese of some sort, like various ways of thinking about Christianity or with like heavy influences of Christianity. Like we've got the language of Christianity. We celebrate Christmas every year, right? And so I think some of that like big, sweeping, drastic conversion is, is somehow foreign to us. And so I, I, I kind of had this in my head, this interesting thought of like, how come we don't see that more often um, in like, I don't know, the United States, in Houston, Texas, right? And so I, I was reading a New York Times article, it's called The Dissenters Trying to Save Evangelicalism from Itself. Uh, a friend of mine sent it to me, and he said, hey, I think you'll like this, check it out. And so as I was reading it, there, it was a story that was kind of not really the point of the story, but it was profound. So there was a group of Christians at Fuller Seminary, and they were talking about the diversity of Fuller Seminary and just the, the different nationalities and ethnicities and just all the different back, backgrounds of those who come there to, to learn. Well, ISIS had launched this attack in Egypt and had killed a bunch of Christians and raised the churches, and it was like this really terrible thing. And so a lot of the American Christians had organized a vigil for the Egyptian Christians that had been slaughtered. And yet the Egyptian Christians at Fuller did this. I want to read this quote to you. After ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks against Egyptian Christians, some Americans at Fuller wanted to hold a memorial service. Yet the Egyptian students said, in effect, what what are you talking about? This is a cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of martyrdom. What? Like, if we're being really honest, if something tragic and violent and terrible was to happen among us, we would not celebrate. Nor am I suggesting that we should. But what I want us to hear is the drastically different perspective that the Egyptian Christians had at Fuller Seminary to this tragedy. See, Jesus' liberation is never really only spiritual. And I think this is probably what we've done with it. We've taken it and we've so spiritualized it that all it is for most of us, if we're really, really, really honest... Is like, cool, I'm going to go live my life the way that I've always been living my life, the way that I plan to live my life. I'm not going to change a stinking thing about how I spend my money, who I spend my time with, and what I spend my time doing. But thank goodness I can come to church on Sunday and celebrate the fact that Jesus has forgiven me for my sins. That doesn't sound very liberating, right? Like it sounds like a tack on, an add on. And yet the Egyptians, the Iranian conversion, these these offer us a picture of like intense liberation that that spills out into the real physical world. Our liberation comes from the freedom of the enslavement of the realm of sin. Not just the, the mistakes we make or the mean things we do to other people, right? Yes, that. But also, in addition to that, the fact that we live in a world of inequity and injustice and violence. Like the things that we have like very little control over and power to do anything about. Like Jesus really and actually frees us from 
materialism. Like Jesus actually really invites us to live into this new relationship where we can actually focus on the love of God and love of neighbor. Where we don't have to spend all of our lives and our energy and our focus and our emotions and, and I don't know, however many hours of day pursuing success and money and, I don't know, attention, whatever it is that we think we need in order to truly be free. See, our struggle is that we are trying to live in both worlds. The kingdom that Jesus has shattered on the cross and the kingdom of God. And Jesus is inviting us into one of those worlds because it's in one of those that we're actually going to find beauty and grace and joy and delight and real, actual freedom. We're looking for love in all the wrong places, baby. So while we've been freed from the bankrupt system of the world, do we not, like the Israelites, continue to try to go back to our old slave masters? Do we not try to go and find life in those things that impoverished us before? Are we not going back to Pharaoh, looking for life, looking for love, looking for meaning? No, 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 no. We're a new people of God, delivered into a new way of life, a way of true flourishing, a way of liberation and freedom, a way of love. We live in the kingdom of Jesus that, yes, it is among us today, right now, even though it's not yet that way in the world around us. And we're reminded that liberation can so often look like suffering if we're standing in the old world. Liberation can so often look like hardship when we're standing in the old world. Liberation can so often look like death when we're standing in the old world. Living into the freedom of Jesus, yes, it will be costly from if you're standing there. But when you step into the kingdom of God, you see that that empire was bankrupt from the beginning. That it was doing nothing but taking from you, sucking your soul out of you, and leaving you uh, like garbage on the side of the road. Jesus assures us that his way, the way of the cross, is the way to the new kingdom. And Jesus invites us. He says, come, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that um, the majority of days I don't see this clearly. And even fewer days than that, I actually live into this and want to live into this. Will you have mercy on me? Will you stand as the one who has bought me out of slavery And brought me into your family? Will you stand as the one who has conquered both the sin that that still clings to my heart today and the sin that oppresses me and those I love and even those far away, the sin that seems to have a stranglehold on the world? Will you assure us, no, 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 you have won. You are victorious. You have conquered that sin. Will you help us to see you, to worship you, to find life in you, 
Will you give us the courage to let go of some of these things that are holding us back from you and to really, truly follow you with abandon? We love you. We're trying to love you more. Will you give us grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.